We have been invited into rest, real rest, a rest that reaches down deep into our souls. It is a rest that brings stability and peace in the midst of the daily grind. It is a rest that is found not only in a person, but also in a place, what I will call a sacred space. We are being invited to daily connect with Christ in this sacred space. And over the next six weeks, we are going to learn how to create this space in our daily lives. Come, all who are weary, all who are burdened, and he will give us rest. We begin this morning with a poem entitled The Invitation. Come. Come dependent. Come broken. Come hungry and thirsty. Come anxious and hurting. Come. Come with your questions, with all of your fears and doubts. Come with your idols and ungodly obsessions. Come. Come with a willingness to listen. To sit quiet and learn. Come from every walk of life, from every continent, from every tribe, from every corner of the earth. Simply come, and you will find rest for your souls. Welcome back to the living room. We are continuing our journey together into hopefully what will be the sacred space of greater intimacy with Christ I believe if we were all to answer honestly, I believe there is a desire in all of us to have a more intimate relationship with Christ, and why else would we be gathered here on a Sunday morning? Last week, we explored the, the concept of posture as it relates to that intimacy with Christ, and when I say posture, that it's relating to our overall attitudes and our approach to this life that either leaves the kingdom of God and entrance into sacred space hidden or revealed. In fact, we saw two principles play out our very eyes last week. The first is this, it is the gracious will of the Lord to hide the kingdom of God. We have this perspective that it is, is the Lord's will to reveal it to every single person. That is not true. In fact, paradoxically, the second uh, principle we gleaned last week it is the gracious will of the Lord to reveal the kingdom of God. And the difference between his hiding and revealing is based upon the people's posture that is taken before him. I want us to look in our Bibles. Everybody open your Bible. Say word. Word. Not a lot of words over here. I'm just kidding. You all win, though. Uh, Matthew chapter 11. It's not a competition. Verse 25. We were invited into this intimate place of prayer between Christ and his Father. And I assure you, this prayer was not voiced for the Lord's benefit or for the Father's. It was for us as his followers to be invited into that place of prayer. It says, at that time Jesus declared or Jesus prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from whom? The wise and the understanding. Those who are the wise and the understanding of this age. Those whose wisdom is apart from God's wisdom. Those whose understanding is apart from God's understanding and revelation. These things, i.e. the principles of the kingdom of God, and even entrance into sacred space is hidden. And then reciprocally, the Lord thanks the Father. He says, Lord, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed them, these things, to whom? To little children. 
In fact, he continues, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, which led to this great principle to enter into sacred space, whether initial relationship or sacred space of a growing intimate relationship with Christ, we must become like little children. In Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus speaking brought a child into the midst of a group of disciples. In verse 3 of chapter 18, Jesus declared, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will what? Never. I can't think of a more absolute statement in all of Scripture. Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, in fact, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This question, who is the greatest? Those who humble themselves to the posture of like little children. In fact, attempting to approach Christ in any other posture is to guarantee that the kingdom of God and even entrance into sacred space will be hidden. The wise and the understanding of this age remain completely ignorant when it comes to the principles of the kingdom of God. Rather, in fact, those who approach Christ in humility, teachability, and the posture of a child who receive this revelation, who receive this invitation, become awake and alive and enter. In fact, the posture of these two little girls right here coloring, it's wonderful. I got a question, when do we get so grown up? Shame on us. For being so grown up that we've forgotten how to be children, to approach Christ in childlike faith and dependency. In fact, we saw last week, not only are we to approach Christ with a childlike posture and humility and meekness, that's, that is a really good job coloring that cross, by the way. I love the combination of blue and orange. It's fabulous. Uh, not only are we to approach in a childlike posture, but in fact, to enter into sacred space, we must be willing to admit our need. And so not only like in a childlike posture, but in a posture of neediness and dependency. And so in this vein, last week we ended talking about a couple of people, uh, and it's, these are people that are probably not you, okay? So this is somebody else. These are other people, which makes it far easier to talk about them. It's so much easier to talk about others than ourselves. So uh, does anybody remember from last week the first person we met? Is it up there? It's probably up there. Oh, it is. Well, it took all the fun out of that game. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So who's the first person? Gary, right? Gary has got it all together. And so last week I gave him a unibrow, and then I was informed that if Gary has it all together, he ain't going to have no unibrow. So he has a perfect eyebrow. Okay, so this is got it together Gary. Sorry, Gary. Or Gary's out there. This is nothing personal. And then we also have, oh, he needs some hair. That's some sweet hair, Gary. And then he is his counterpart. This is who? Sure-footed Susie, not Sally. I keep getting those names mixed up. Uh, it is definitely Susie. And so we have met these two individuals. And again, let's talk about them. And let's talk about them from the, the perspective that they're not us. This is somebody else, okay? So the questions I have as it relates to sure-footed and got it together is the first question is, how do you believe that these two approach life? And, oh, by the way, you got to participate because it's going to be weird if you sit there silent. So how do they approach life? What's that? Confident. And by the way, uh, this is how they're perceived. 
That doesn't mean this is who they really are. This is probably a really good mask, but we'll unpack that later. So confidence, what else? And by the way, please yell out words that I can spell. What? Positive. Positive people. The power of positivity. Positivity. Everything's so great. My life's falling apart, but everything's great. Wow, you're so positive. Thanks. I've got it together. What else? What's that? They have no worries. Don't worry about a thing. They've got no worries. What else? Swag. They are kind of swaggy, aren't they? Okay, so we got a few descriptors here. What is their overall attitude? Which we've already talked, kind of swaggy, actually. Swag attitude. What else? What's our attitude to life? What? Better. So they are better than others. Or can handle it better than others. Ooh, I like that. Uh, Others. They are in control. What else? Overconfident. Ooh, I like that. How about self-confident? Overconfident, we could call that self-confident. Arrogant. Wow. Well, it's somebody else, right? So (laughs) we're not talking about ourselves here. All right, so arrogant. Okay, so now, uh, more importantly to the discussion of our series, how do they approach the Lord? Ouch. They don't. Well, we've already looked at it. If, if you're not willing to admit or come to him as in a childlike posture where you don't have it all together, you aren't sure-footed, and if you aren't willing to admit need, you'll never come. So they don't come. How else do they approach the Lord? Sundays only. Again, it's so much easier to talk about this other person, right? Uh, what else? They, they don't need the Lord. Right, they got this. <laughs> They're doing God a favor. I <laughs> uh, uh, love it. Sometimes, I, sometimes we pray, or, or uh, I'm sorry, we, other people pray, uh, got it together and sure-footed pray in such a way like they're giving God advice. They're like, in, in case you didn't know, Lord, like we're filling him in. Think of the arrogance of that posture. Okay, so we've, we've discussed these people, I think, far enough. We've already established that those who come to Christ must take on a certain posture, and then this in itself is inconsistent. This caricature of got it together and being sure-footed is, is inconsistent to the posture that we're seeing in the Scripture but it also hinders people. This, this attitude of got it together or I'm sure-footed, it hinders us from actually seeing the need and it hinders us from receiving what is going to be, and I hope, one of the most encouraging and one of the most important uh, and one of the greatest invitations in all of Scripture. We are being invited into something incredible. Look in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. We're going to look at 28, 29, 30. But this great invitation... And we can see it as either Jesus crying out or really whispering. I think both are applicable here in this context. Verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more work to do. Now, what does it say? I'm going to give you rest. In fact, this is more accurately translated, come on, come here to you who are weary and who are willing to admit they are in need, those who are heavy laden and laborious. In fact, another way of looking at these these expressions is come all who are continually under the crushing weight of the grind. That is our average everyday life. 
Is life not a grind? This crushing. Come all who are continually exhausted. Come all who are weak and weary. Come all who are utterly broken and in need. And when we come in this posture of complete dependency, we receive something. In fact, something incredible happens. And we're about to see a mystery revealed before our very eyes this morning. There is something absolutely restorative being offered. And in fact, Jesus possesses something that we can't find anywhere else. The restorative soul or restoration or satisfaction, it's not sold in a store. In fact, we spend a lot of time invested in pursuits that do not save, do not restore, and do not satisfy. Our lives can often read like a very poignant indictment that we find in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2. I will read it for you. Why? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which that does not satisfy? Why do we invest all of our time in activities that don't restore the soul? Why do we spend the currency of our life on things that don't feed our soul? We are a culture constantly trying to find satisfaction, yet the words of the Rolling Stone, I can't get no satisfaction, right? Because we're trying to find it in something other than Jesus. There is nothing outside of Christ that offers true satisfaction out of the soul, but they do provide, the things we pursue provide a a large amount of distraction. We are distracted people. Probably the most distracted in history. I would call us the ADD and the ADHD generation, and I'm not speaking clinically. I'm speaking of just the general distraction of our daily life, the noise, the advertising, the mechanism of the technological advancement of our culture and life. Our world is so loud, we can't even hear Jesus speak. I would say also our lives are so loud. It is incredibly hard to hear Jesus speak. I quote here from Dallas Willard who writes this, Our households and offices are filled with the whirring and buzzing and murmuring and chattering and the, the whining of the multiple contraptions that are supposed to make life easier. In fact, we all now have this extended appendage that we carry with us all the time that's constantly buzzing, constantly beeping, constantly reminding us, Be distracted. Be distracted. Be distracted. We're just constantly being distracted. I was in the store yesterday, and I heard somebody else's cell phone go off. I wasn't even distracted with my own device. I was distracted by somebody else's device. And I was like, I wonder who texted them. I don't even know this person. I wonder what's going on in their life. <laughs> Did somebody just accept their friend request? Did they just post something that got more likes than the thing I posted? I got likes. And, and you're sitting there, and we're just distracted. And so Jesus is, is crying out to us, or even whispering, which I think is probably a little bit more accurate, and the chaos and the noise and the distraction of our lives, and he's saying, come. Come to a sacred space. We face a couple of hurdles, though, and they're pretty big when it comes to entering this space, this invitation that Jesus is offering. First, we must be willing to come. I mean, if he extends an invitation, we're like, I'm not accepting that. Well, that's a huge hurdle, wouldn't you agree? And then secondly, not only to accept, but we must be willing to admit our need. We need to come exhausted. 
Okay, Jesus is not saying, hey, who you, you who have it all together, come to me. He's saying, you who are exhausted, you who are hungry, you who are thirsty, you who are weary. And in fact, that is the description of our, of our life. And did you know that there is a blessing for approaching him in a needy posture? Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we are told that blessed, blessed are the people who come to Christ hungry and thirsty, hungering and thirsty for righteousness. Because they will what? They'd be filled. They'd be satisfied. We are to come hungry and thirsty. And he invites us in that dependency and that need. And he says, I'll satisfy you. I'm reminded of a passage where Jesus is at the great feast of tabernacles in John chapter 7. And he is speaking to a bunch of religious people who were exhausted. They're being crushed by the law. And the system that is being implemented around them by their own culture. And Jesus stands up at the most poignant time during the feast. And he cries out to the people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. A chapter prior and since six months before, in John chapter 6, there was a group of people that were trying to crown him king for all the wrong reasons. They were like, wow, this guy can... Pump out bread out of nowhere. Let's just make him king. He can feed us all the time. And Jesus is like, I offer you something so much more than earthly bread. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus is offering us something so much more satisfying than a single meal. It's something that satisfies the soul. There is reality to the statement, man and woman does not live on bread alone. We are to come to him hungry. But before we experience true satisfaction in relationship with Christ, we must come aware of and cognizant of our need. There There are words that describe how we are to approach hungry. We are to approach Christ thirsty and tired and scared and worried and overwhelmed and confused. With a readiness to listen. This week I spent a good portion scouring the scriptures looking for an alternate invitation. I was looking for possibly come all who are stable and sure-footed. Couldn't find it. Come all who have it together and are independently competent. Nowhere to be found. Come all who can take care of their own needs. Come all who need nothing. Why would it ever extend an invitation like that? Because if we honestly believe that we are stable and sure-footed, we got it together, we're independently competent, and we can take care of our own needs, we need nothing, we would never come. Did you know there's a reason why this life was never supposed to satisfy you? It's designed that way. Man has been made for intimacy with his creator. You see, by their very posture, got it together, Gary, who is obviously somebody else, it's not me, and sure-footed Susie, by their very posture, they'll never experience the rest, the satisfaction and the restoration that Jesus talks about. Because family, to enter into sacred space, we must be willing to admit our need. But when we do, and we do approach him in that dependency, in that posture, the restorative work of Christ takes place. And you know what, family? It can only take place in sacred space. To attempt to approach God in any other posture than the posture of dependency is to grossly misunderstand what he is offering us every single day. And I've heard people say to me, Chris, that's good. That's, that's all fine and good. But you know what? I only take the big stuff to the guy upstairs. You ever talk to somebody that has that impression, that perspective? 
I got all the little stuff, but I'll take the biggie. When I really need him, I'll call on him. And I'm like, wow, you totally misunderstand who he is. Did you know we're to take everything to him? Think about this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus teaches us to pray. And in that prayer, we are literally encouraged, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I can't think of anything more basic than bread. I mean, we're not, Lord Jesus, please give us this day our daily steak, a ribeye thick cut, slathered, and some delicious uh, browned and seasoned onions on a bed of lightly fluffed garlic potatoes. Apologies, I was really hungry when I was working through this. <laughs> we're to approach him like, Lord Jesus, we pray for our daily crouton. This is a basic of human need. We're to approach him with every spiritual hunger pain. With every single need. And this morning we're seeing this invitation. And it's not just to be restored. In fact, it's a restorative relationship. And that relationship is, is based upon discipleship. That we come to Christ as learners. We submit ourselves to him. And it's not to just follow him once or to come to him once and receive salvation and then go on with our life. It's not get out of hell insurance. I wish we could see beyond just the eternal life and recognize it's about today too. Yes, in Christ there is salvation. There is salvation in no other name. But he, there is no abundance apart from Jesus either. And so when Christ invites us to come to him, it is also supremely an invitation to follow him daily. Listen, look, check this out. This blew my mind this week. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, the first three words, come to me. Now, in Matthew 4, 19, Jesus makes a statement to his disciples, follow me. Did you know that it's the exact same Greek word? When Jesus says, come to me, he's saying, follow me daily. And it, it increases as he continues to explain it. It's not only come to me, it's not only follow me. In fact, in verse 29 of chapter 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. To come to him and to follow him and be yoked to him. In fact, he says, and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus tells us to take his yoke upon us. Now, we don't use a lot of yokes today. It's kind of an agrarian tool. Maybe some of you grew up using a yoke. Uh, it's a fascinating device, though. It's pictured behind me. This is a picture of a, a yoke, and it was designed, this device was designed to take two animals and increase output. You take one animal who's producing a certain amount of output, you tack another animal on there, and all of a sudden you double the output, or maybe even more than that, triple or quadruple the output. Something powerful of two animals pulling together. Well, also, this tool was used as a, a training device where a stronger, more mature animal would be yoked to a younger, more immature animal. And in fact, the yokes could be designed so that the stronger, more mature animal would carry the majority of the burden, while the younger, more immature animal would carry less weight. And what Jesus is saying is, come to me. You can't handle what you're carrying. Did you know that Jesus can handle the weight of the world's problems on his shoulders? And that sure means he can handle the weight of our own world, our own lives. On his shoulders he's saying come to me i'll take the burden of the way and you will have this perfectly fitted yoke on your shoulders and i'll teach you learn from me in fact and it may seem kind of a paradox because we're like well we've already testified that we're weary so now we got to carry more burden and it's quite the opposite because jesus tells us that his yoke is not more burden in fact in verse 30 of chapter 11 he describes the yoke as easy 
And the burden that he's talking about is light. Jesus is not inviting us into a more burdened life, but actually a life of less burden. And that's why it's so hard for me to understand when I see certain Christians walking around, they're like, oh, oh, the crushing weight of following Christ. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't think that's the accurate picture of the Christian. I'm just taking up my cross. I'm like, dude, you got to chillax a little bit because I I don't think that's that's accurate. We have this idea in our mind that God is somehow really hard to please. And that if you're not being crushed by your Christian life, you're not living it right. I don't believe that what Jesus is referencing in the abundant life, when he says, I've come that you may have life and life abundant, I don't think he was talking about, hey, I came so I could crush you more. We're already crushed. You see, what Jesus is in fact describing is a learning discipleship relation with him. Jesus is saying, hey, yoke yourself to him. He is the strong one. His stout shoulders can carry. And you learn from him when we follow him. We are to daily take a seat under his instruction, and we discover that he's no grueling taskmaster. In fact, he describes himself. And I don't know if these are the first words that would come to your mind when I asked you to describe Jesus, or if I asked you to describe Jesus, I don't know. But I hope these become the prevailing concepts in your mind when you think of Jesus. Because he says he is first gentle. It is a word that means considerate and meek. This tells us that each of us, has a unique relationship with Christ. Did you know that Christ uniquely and meekly receives each of us into this yoked relationship? He perfectly cuts a yoke for each of our shoulders. Your yoke is not my yoke. My yoke is not your yoke. And in fact, your Christian journey is unlike any other Christian journey. There are some similarities, but your relationship with Christ is unique. You may not believe that. But did you know that in eternity... When we are fully in his presence, that there is going to be a name inscribed for you that only you and Jesus know. This kind of blew my heart this week because then I was thinking about it and I was like, well, that means that we're all his favorites. I don't know why that seemed important to me at the time, but it seemed important. We're all his favorites. I have often seen the lives of Christians that are paraded before us or put up on a pedestal, and we're like, oh, if I just did as much as that person, then God would love me. Or if I could just do more, he would be more pleased with me. And I think about that. I think, what a misunderstanding of his love for us. Did you know God's not waiting for you to do more? Maybe even do less. He is gentle, but he is also lowly in heart. That means he does not have a pretentious heart. Jesus doesn't strut, although he has every right to. He, in fact, is not puffed up with arrogance. He is firm, you better believe it, but he is gentle. Jesus approaches us with a lowly heart. This means we don't have to get cleaned up first. This means we do not have to get cleaned up first. That is why I cringe when I hear certain pastors or certain people challenging or encouraging people to clean up their behavior before they even have Christ as a Savior. 
People have a hard time seeing Jesus as gentle and lowly in heart because so many preachers out there have painted Jesus as iron-fisted. Wielding a thick teacher's ruler that he will quickly and arbitrarily wrap across our fingers for the slightest transgression. Do you believe that's authentically why Christ was crushed? Do you think he really went to the cross so he could walk around with a thick teacher's ruler to wrap us across the hands? For the slightest mistake or transgression. Family, that isn't Jesus. That is some distorted, weird, controlling mechanism created by man to keep people in bondage. In fact, what we find is gentle and lowly in heart. And still with that said, some of us may be thinking to ourselves, I ain't going to be yoked to no one. I don't care how gentle and lowly Jesus is. I'm a free thinker. I'm an individual. I ain't submitting to nobody. Ah, I'd be careful with that, really. Because here's a couple of of doses of reality. Everyone is yoked to something. Or someone. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul the Apostle writes this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What Paul is talking about in the context is very much about the slavery to the Mosaic law, but it's bigger than that. Because we are either yoked to Christ or we are yoked to bondage of sin and death. Family, our very culture is a yoke. The American dream, it is a grinding, terrible yoke of oppression. It chews people up and spits them out with zero concern or gentleness. You think the American dream cares about you? Or is gentle or lowly? It is puffed up. It is proud. It is arrogant. It steps on others to rise to the top. And in the end, it leaves us all dead and destitute and sick. It creates the me first attitude. Why is it that when we get on the road where the first inclination is, I got to get ahead of that person? It's a yoke. I watch folks on television and I think to myself as they're parading this fame and this fortune in front of us and I think to myself, wow, what a terrible yoke to carry. And all philosophical systems, all worldviews that people have apart from the grace of Christ, it's not freedom, it's bondage. That's why Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, those who practice sin are sin slaves. Paul picks up on that same theme in Romans 6 where he says, for when you were slaves of sin... When were we slaves of sin? When was I a slave of sin? Before Christ. That's very accurate, before that birth. In fact, the Bible tells us, it tells me that I was a slave of sin. I thought I was free. You know what I was free in? In the right of righteousness. I never went around and went, huh, I wonder what God would want for my life. I was free of that. I never thought about God, his perspective, his word, his will, his ways. That was in none of my thoughts. But I will tell you right now, when Paul asks this, what fruit were you getting at that time for those things which you are now ashamed? And I look back and I go, well, yeah, it's a pretty accurate uh, assessment for the end of those things is death. I was walking and living death. Christ set me free. But this thought that I will refuse to submit myself to Christ so I can be free is an erroneous ideology. Because we're all in bondage from birth. 
And here is where the rubber meets the road for all of us. Because I do not believe that there is a single person who is here this morning who doesn't desire a, a more intimacy with Christ or some level of growth in our spiritual life or we wouldn't come. There are so many other options in our culture today. I hop, right? Never been. Oh. Rudy Tootie, no fresh and fruity. Hmm. It's pretty awesome. Still hungry. So as I think about this, <laughs> thank you, Stephen. You know, if I tell a joke and you don't laugh, I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it's silent in here and Stephen doesn't laugh, I'm going to be like, oh, I got scratched out. That's a pretty bad joke. <laughs> Listen to this. It's only through receiving Christ's invitation into a truly yoked relationship that you will find rest for your souls. I believe we desire that. We might not know really how to go about it, but I think we desire it. Maybe we've, we've chalked it up in our minds it's too hard. Family, I want you to hear this. I'm not sure where you're at in your spiritual life, but I believe we all desire intimacy, and he's inviting us to come. He's not going to make it hard on you, but he does demand a childlike posture, and he does demand that you come in need and dependency. It's non-negotiable. But what we come to discover is when we receive that invitation to come, to yoke ourselves to him, to follow, that's when we find rest for our souls. And so next week, we've looked at posture, and we have looked at the invitation, but next week, we're going to look at the place. The place that is called the sacred space. And I'll tell you right now, here's a little teaser for you next week. The place that we're going to learn about, it's utterly desolate. But it is utterly sacred. And it is a place where we do find true and abiding rest for our souls. And so with that in mind, a few applications. The first that comes to mind is come with the caveat, caveat, all who are in need. If you're not in need, you're not going to come. In fact, to enter into sacred space, we must be willing to first admit our need. If we've got it all together or if we're sure-footed, we probably will not see our need for Jesus. And in fact, if, you're, if that's where you're at right now, you might be hearing me talk and you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't really need him. It's, it's crazy to me how the wandering soul stumbles in and out of darkness, convincing themselves that it's light. I myself stumbled in and out of darkness, and then when I came to the light, I was like, oh my gosh, your light shines so bright. How come it took so long for me to see it? Aha! It was hidden. On my very posture, I would not come because I didn't think I was in need. It was only when I realized my utter need of Christ that I saw. In fact, I came to a couple of thoughts. Christ is the only one who can save the wandering soul. And Christ is the only one who can comfort and heal the weary soul. It's almost as if Christ is the source of all life. And that apart from Christ, we have no life. That sounds semi-biblical, doesn't it? Here's another prevailing issue, and, and I'm sure many of us are able to say, look, I'm no got it together, Gary, but I do know a couple of them. I'm no sure-footed Susie, but <laughs> I sure know. It's so easy for some strange reason to see this in other people, but not ourselves. Isn't that weird? We have this uncanny ability to point out the failings of other people, then to just gloss over the glaring inconsistencies in our own life. But here's an issue, because I think all of us can testify that we don't have it together. And we can say with our heart, our mind, we can say out loud, yes, we need Jesus. We're able to articulate our need for Jesus with our mouths, but our lives, we live our life like we don't need him. Let me give you a few examples. Jesus says, come to me. 
We hit snooze. <laughs> I always think, too, I'm like going to wake up and exercise snooze. Jesus says, come to me, and we hurry through our morning routine. Jesus says, come to me, we plow through our work day. Jesus says, come to me, and we flip through our ever-increasing social media obligations. I want to let our followers down. Jesus says, come to me, and we scroll through the never-ending streaming options of programming. Isn't it strange in a distracted world that we're encountering more and more distraction? Hmm, I think someone's behind this. I'm no expert. Jesus says, come to me, and we drag through our evenings of chores and last-minute crazy. Jesus says, come to me, and we exhaustedly drop to our beds ragged from the day. And then we're like, ha, set the alarm for another day tomorrow. All the while, Jesus is whispering to us, come to me. You will find rest for your souls. It's an invitation into rest, in fact. Jesus already knows we're weary. In fact, we're a weary people spending money on things that aren't bread and laboring for things that don't satisfy. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 127, it's useless for you to work so hard. From early morning till late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. For God gives rest to his loved ones, his beloved. Did you know you were God's beloved? He wants you to rest. Why do you think he wrote in a day of rest into the law for Israel? Because we won't rest. We won't stop. God literally had to make a commandment under the penalty of death, and people still wouldn't live, like, live it out. God's like, if you, if you go pick up that bundle of sticks, I'm going to have to kill you. But I've got to pick up the bundle of sticks. Oh, I broke the law. And God's like, dude, what do I got to do to get these people just to rest? He's made us weak. You think you're independent? Let me talk on for 45 or so odd minutes. Your tummy's going to start telling you something. <laughs> Hunger, you're not independent. You're so dependent that you can't live without food. You can't live without water. In fact, hold your breath. We'll see how long this goes. We're going to have a really quiet congregation this morning. We can't live without air. We are utterly dependent beings. Accept this invitation and remember when you do, you're not just being invited into rest and satisfaction of the soul, you're invited to learn. Jesus has so much to teach us, it's incredible. School is always in session. Some of you over here are like, dude, school, really? They bring up school? Yeah. There is a learning component to your faith and to our faith. In fact, we are invited to follow him and to take his easy and light yoke upon us that is uniquely shaped for us to come and to learn from him. And we are told that he is a gracious teacher, gentle, lowly in heart. In fact, the scriptures invite us to learn from him. One of my favorite little nuggets found in Matthew chapter 5, and we often gloss over it because we're so quick to get into the Sermon on the Mount that we miss it. It says here in the text, one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on a mountainside. He sat down. Listen to this. His disciples gathered around him. We are his disciples. We come, we follow, we gather around. That's what we're doing this morning. We're gathering around Christ. That's what happens when you're at home and you gather your family around the kitchen table or wherever that gathering spot is in your home and you open up the word of God. We are gathering around as a family Christ. 
That is what happens when we in our personal life, in the solitude of our own personal Christian walk, we open up the scriptures and we sit. We are literally sitting and gathering around him to learn from him. We are his disciples invited to daily gather. And in that solitude and in that space and in that place, we come to find, wow, there is revitalization. There is restoration. There is true life. And so next week, we're going to look at the place. It may seem a little foreign at first, but I think, I believe, that all of us have a place that we can go that can become utterly desolate but also utterly sacred. And that is where we'll pick up our discussion next week. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your goodness of inviting. Lord, if it was an invitation for those who have it all together, for those who are in need of nothing, I, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like I, would, I wouldn't be able to come. It's just the world's false religions, Lord, that are telling us to, to get ourselves better so that we can come into the presence of some arbitrary God. That is a grueling taskmaster, and then I look at your scriptures, Jesus, and you say, come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm like, I'm weary, I'm heavy laden, yep, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, and you're just saying, come, come to me, and I believe that we as a people, we are hungry, we are weary, we are thirsty, in fact, there is no weary, more weary soul in the world than a wandering soul, I, I just want you to listen to this, friend, if you do not have Jesus as your savior, in the quietness of this space, this, this is no altar call, this is an invitation into true abundant life that you do not have apart from Jesus. You may think you do. You may convince yourself that you do, but really you don't. Because Jesus is the only source. In fact, Jesus has come to you all who are weary, heavy laden. All you who are under the burden of sin and death, come and you'll have life. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. He was buried. He is risen. The Bible said all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so I invite you to come to receive that invitation. If you feel like that invitation is for you and you want to receive Jesus as your Savior in the quietness of your heart, tell him, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried. Please, Jesus, save my life. The Bible declares that is your heart's prayer. You've passed from death to life. You wander no more. You have been found. And you are now found alive in Jesus. And to us, the weary, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal that everything else we chase that does not satisfy is, is at best a distraction, and at worst, it saturates our soul with something other than rest, with conflict and chaos, competition and pride. May we be a people weary who come and find true rest for our souls. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.